A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron. This is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. So you might well think politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And then, yes, of course, you'd be right. But of course, everything else is too. So I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are involved in politics and doing so in an informed way. Today, we're speaking about whether we should have an established church. The Church of England has many constitutional and traditional ties with Parliament. So does this aid the gospel or does it hinder it? We're going to be joined by Andrew Salou. He's a Christian. He's an MP, but he's also the second Church of State Commissioner, which means he's the link between the Church of England and Parliament. He answers questions from MPs on behalf of the Church of England, and he represents the Church's concerns in Westminster too. But before we speak to Andrew, Cara Bentley has a roundup of some of the news this week. Well, the Prime Minister has, of course, had his secret wedding at Westminster Cathedral, and with it being a Catholic ceremony, a quirk consequence of our Prime Minister being, most recently anyway, nominally Catholic, is that he can no longer officially advise the Queen on the nominations for Church of England bishops. Most recently, this has just been the passing on of names rather than any actual advice. But if Mr Johnson were to take a sudden interest in the next bishop nomination, he would officially be guilty of high misdemeanour and disabled from ever holding any office, civil or military. So number 10 has passed this on to Robert Buckland, the Lord Chancellor. In other news, former guest on this show, Danny Kruger, has apologised after his puppy Pebble ran loose and caused a stampede of deer in Richmond Park. The whole event was caught on camera, with the Conservative MP for Devizes saying it was just his luck that the police also happened to be watching from a parked car. He had to pay a total of £719, part of which was a fine for causing a stampede without written permission from the Secretary of State. But something else that didn't get permission this week was a vote highly anticipated on the foreign aid budget. Tim, what's been going on? Well, this week, at least 30 MPs, including former Prime Minister Theresa May, raised objections to the government's proposed cut in international aid. The Speaker didn't allow a vote on Monday, but did suggest an emergency debate on the issue to give MPs a chance to air their views. Over the last few parliaments, the United Kingdom has met the United Nations suggestion that wealthier countries should give an amount of money equivalent to 0.7% of their GDP in aid to poorer countries. The current government, however, gave notice at their recent budget they would reduce that figure to 0.5%, which would see a cut of about £4 billion in the amount of money the UK spends on overseas aid. The government does say it plans to return to its commitment when the fiscal situation allows, but this dispute comes at a time when the leaders of seven wealthy democracies, the UK, US, Germany, France, Canada, Italy and Japan, the G7, gather together in Cornwall for their 2021 summit. Indeed, that is why the Conservative rebels have chosen this time to launch their proposal. Opposition MPs from Labour, Liberal Democrats, SNP and others oppose the government's proposed cut in international aid when it was first proposed a few months ago. But this Conservative rebellion means that there could now be enough MPs to force the government to rethink. Andrew Mitchell, one of the leading rebels last night, estimated that he would have got a majority of at least nine had that vote been allowed. The Bible, of course, doesn't give us a literal guide as to how much the UK government should be giving to the poor. And the government would say that COVID-19 has led to exceptional circumstances and that the amount we give away will still be more than £10 billion. 
When we as Christians think about this, we might differ on specifics, but I'm going to suggest there are a few Bible passages that provide us with very clear principles. In Deuteronomy, we're told not to harden our heart or shut our hand against the poor brother. In Leviticus, we are commanded not to hold on to all that we could, but instead to share with the poor. And in 1 Timothy, to be generous and willing to share. You don't need me to tell you that I could come up with dozens, if not hundreds of other verses to demonstrate God's care for the poor and his command that we should be generous. Again, none of these verses tell us what we should give. I often hear people say, well, don't we have enough poor people here in the UK? Shouldn't we prioritise them? Well, the answer must surely be that it's not right to make the poor overseas do with less in order that we can support the poor in Britain. A rich country can do both, can't it? There are some government advisers who think that cutting aid is popular with the public. A recent YouGov poll said that 54% of Britain support cutting the foreign aid budget, although this has gone down from 66% back in November last year. But I'm reminded that Edmund Burke said that an MP's first responsibility is to their conscience, even ahead of the will of their electorate, and certainly ahead of the will of their party. Don't get me wrong, being loyal to your party is not necessarily a bad thing. Being a team player and working with others is mostly good. But there comes a time when an MP will feel a call to break the whip if their conscience differs from the party line. It certainly happened to me a few times, especially when my party was in government. So for Christians across the country, I'd encourage you to pray for wisdom for our MPs of all parties and for courage if that wisdom leads MPs to see a divergence between their views and the views of their whips. And I'd also encourage Christians to lovingly engage with their MPs to let them know what you think. Even if you think your MP already agrees with you, it will be a great way to develop their relationship with Christians. And if you suspect they might not agree with you, you can be a powerful witness, not just in what you say, but by the gentleness of how you say it. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. This week, we're talking about the relationship between the church and the state. Is the Church of England's link with Parliament something Christians should celebrate, try to end, or just simply make the best of? Joining us is an MP who has a foot in both camps. Andrew Salou is the Conservative MP for South West Bedfordshire, and this week he celebrates his 20th year in Parliament. But in January 2020, he was appointed as Second Church Estates Commissioner, taking questions from MPs regularly about issues that affect the Church in the House of Commons. But as a Christian and a churchgoer himself, I want to get to know how he came to know Christ before we ask about all that. Andrew, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. and Welcome. Tim, it's lovely to be with you. Thank you for asking me. Well, let's start off with the, or maybe the most important of all the questions. How did you become a Christian? Well, I was um, lucky enough to be to be brought up in um, a Christian home. I was taken to church uh, when I was uh, young. I had, had good teaching um, about Christianity at um, school, but I would say it really sort of um, became my own, probably when I started working in London after I left university, I joined um, a lively central London Anglican church. Uh, my faith really developed then. But I would um, I describe myself, Tim, as an Emmaus Road Christian rather than a Damascus Road one. And uh, as I think I've said to you before, I'm, I'm always quite envious of those people who can say, you know, half past four on the 17th of June, 1992, you know, the scales fell from my eyes and I, I saw Jesus as uh, my Lord and Saviour for, for the first time. Um, I think I am still very much 
work in progress is how I would describe myself, Tim. I think God is uh, very gracious to me um, every day and is helping me see and understand and, and hopefully be a good disciple and, and try and point others to him day by day. That's a great example to, to many others. We should be graciously suspicious of uh, very, very, very exciting conversion stories. I try to be about my own. <laughs> so how have you chosen the churches that you've gone to throughout your time as a Christian, particularly since you um, well, moved to London and, uh, and you began your, your, your working life? Yeah, well, I mean, I went to our sort of village um, parish church when I was young. I went to London University, so I, I went to the university church um, there for a while. And uh, when I sort of started working in London, I was a member of a territorial army regiment and I had a friend in it who I knew was a churchgoer and I, I asked him where he went and uh, if I could come along with him and that, that happened to be Holy Trinity Brompton in, in central London and was there for a long period of time actually met my, met my wife there. When we had children our priority was always um, to go to a church where our children were, were most going, going to grow and I'm actually very ecumenical as a Christian, very, you know, proud to be an Anglican and, and, and you know, um, very honoured to be Second Church States Commissioner. But I'm very ecumenical in my outlook. And although I, I've mainly gone to Anglican churches, our, our village church where we live at home in our constituency only had a Sunday school once a month. So we, 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 we've ended up sort of moving to a number of other churches which have had good, good you know, weekly Sunday schools, youth activities where our children have you know, been able to get to on, on Sundays during the week and above all have made friends. You know, it's very hard to be a Christian on your own, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So I think it's so important to have a good group of Christian friends when you're young throughout your life, really. So that's, that's really been our sort of guiding, guiding principle um certainly when our, when our children were young anyway that's very wise andrew uh, so politics isn't something that you went into straight away uh, after university you um went into um insurance reinsurance industry how did you end up going from that to becoming a member of parliament 20 years ago yeah um I guess when, when I was at school, I had what I described as a sort of armchair interest in politics. I loved political debate and argument. I didn't always know where I stood. I certainly didn't know what all the answers were, but I was always fascinated and always, you know, very keen to get and listen to uh, interesting speakers. And I guess that interest became a bit more practically focused when I left university, started work in uh, London so I, I just got involved in a local branch as a volunteer you know delivering leaflets raising money with raffles and that sort of thing you, you all know very well that that side of political life it's not particularly glamorous or, or high profile but I think it's actually an essential bedrock really and um, um, so so that that really was was my route through and I guess at some point in my mid to late 20s, I sort of got the, got the political bug. I was loving my work as a reinsurance underwriter and as a territorial army soldier, but I, I thought it would be amazing to try and get into parliament and sort of put myself forward for the, for the selection process and was um, you know, very, very humbled and honoured to be selected and then elected uh, first in 2001, 20 years ago this week. 
Amazing. And in to 97, you had a dry run, as they say. It doesn't, it's not how it works for every aspiring MP, but you ended up uh, running in, uh, back in those, in those days, we'll say, an area of the country the Conservatives wouldn't normally expect to do well, but have done a bit better more recently. So Sunderland North, was it? Correct. 1997, I fought Sunderland North, and as um, the old joke goes, Sunderland North fought back, as they say. <laughs> so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't victorious on that um, occasion. But I actually loved that campaign. Um, my mother-in-law was born in Sunderland. I, I know the Northeast quite well. It's the most wonderful um, part of the country. Um, actually, there's quite a lot of good economic news at that point. You know, jobs have been created, new business parts were opening and so on. So I, I threw myself into it with enthusiasm, but it, uh, it wasn't meant to be for me in 1997 anyway. Well... We'll move forward in a moment to talk about your your time in uh, Parliament in the last year and a half. But finally, on this part of your of your life, becoming an MP and being a Christian, did you find that making friends with people across party lines who are Christians in 2001 was something that came easily? Was it something that was immediately obvious to you? Did you have to search for fellowship once you got here? I think we're incredibly lucky in um, Parliament, Tim, because we're really very well served from that point of view. I mean, this morning I've, I've done a Bible study with other MPs. You know, one of the first Bible studies I joined when I arrived at um, your Lib Dem colleague, Alistair Carmichael, was a member of it. And um, yeah, I've absolutely got um, Christian friends uh, in, in all, all, all the political parties in the House. And, um, you know, we are... We are human beings first. We're people of faith first. I think we are politicians second. You know, our sort of tribal party allegiances, they, they may be important to us in, in terms of who we are and how we want to make life better for people. But we should never forget the human connection. We should never forget we are all created in the image of God. And whatever reset you and I happen to put on at election time, you are my brother in Jesus, Tim, you know. And that's, um, you know, that's something that I, I think we really need to hang on to in this quite sort of bitter, bitter, divisive world that we've sort of moved, moved into with social media and everything else. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking with Andrew Salou, who represents the link between church and parliament as the second church estates commissioner. So, Andrew, that sounds a bit of a mouthful. Tell me what your role is in 20 seconds. <laughs> Yeah, my, my key role, Tim, is to be accountable to the House of Commons um, for the Church of England as the established um, church for England, although I do take questions uh, very happily and indeed fairly regularly uh, from MPs from Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales as well. So we have an established church in this country. If you go way, way back in history, the church sort of had its own money. Some of that ended up being... Uh, sort of taken by the state. And then in um, 1704, some of that was given back by Queen Anne in something called Queen Anne's Bounty, and that was voted through sort of by Parliament. And that forms the endowment fund, if you like, which the church commissioners manage. And that fund produces about 15, 1-5% of, of, of the income for the Church of England. And we have 26 bishops in the House of Lords as well. So the Church of England has a privileged position but it does, as a sort of national established church, very much try to hold the candle for, for faith uh, generally and for all faiths. And actually, I think people of other faiths really appreciate that. 
and would be quite nervous of disestablishment and what that would do to their role in society as well. That's very interesting. As you rightly say, there's nobody standing up in Parliament uh, being accountable for the Methodists or the Baptists, or the Free Church or Catholics or Muslims or uh, for Jewish uh, religion. Um, so I guess that does beg the question whether we think having an established church is a good thing for a country. And secondly, is it a good thing for the gospel? Well, um, I would I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't very strongly think think the answer was Yes, uh, the Church of England is, is certainly not not perfect, but I think having that national footprint, you know, a parish in every part of the country, you know, from the, the poorest inner city area to the sort of wealth, wealthiest rural or suburban part of the country, the Church of England is there with a church open for absolutely everyone. And I think that is that is really, really precious. And, um, you know, when I look at what we do with, with our schools, we run a quarter of all the primary schools in England. There are a million children every day being educated in Church of England schools in England. We actually employ more children's and youth workers, Tim, than all local authorities put together. You know, and then we've got our 80,000 volunteers, 33,000 different social action projects. That's a pretty impressive footprint that often doesn't, you know, cry out for attention. A lot of this work goes on very quietly, day by day, you know, at, at the very, very local level, meeting need and, and so on. And I do think that is something really, really precious. And if I may, if you would just allow me mm. to give a sort of second part to the answer, um, I think there are some really important questions as to where moral authority and legitimacy and power comes from. Now, you and I know very well that it comes through a majority in the House of Commons. That's how we get our government. And that is absolutely vital. You and I are Democrats and we would support that. And that, that, that social authority for the government of the day is really, really important. But in, in the coronation, our head of state receives um, their authority from above um, as if they were under the authority of God and subject to a higher sort of moral judgment. And I think that's a tremendously important thing, actually, that our established church brings. Yes, a democratically elected government should be respected. It does have authority. But actually, that sort of independent moral judgment coming from Scripture and the independence and the, of the, and the autonomy of the church I think is a really valuable addition to our national life and our constitution. And there may be a few sparks occasionally and bishops and ministers, may, you know, will not always see eye to eye. And that's fine. We can normally work those relationships out. But I, I, I do think there is quite a lot, actually, when you stand back and look at the whole constitutional settlement that, that an established church does bring to our country. And particularly, as I say, when the church is standing up for people of all faiths, that adds a really important extra dimension as well. That's a really good, strong, practical case for the for the role of church. I and mean, as a as an instinctive disestablisher, I absolutely take on board everything that you've said there. I think maybe we, we obviously hear the a kind of a, a non-Christian uh, critique of the established church. I guess for many Christians, the critique comes from a concern that if the church is a kind of part of the furniture of the state. Um, a prisoner even of the state, that that might sometimes see a, a watering down of the gospel. How, how, would, you, how would you react to, to that challenge? 
I think if you look back over recent decades, you will see that the that the church has been very independent, very autonomous. It has had a critique of governments, both left and right. In fact, if you look back at you know amendments bishops have brought to the House of Lords under Labour and Conservative and coalition governments, so um, the Church of England, I don't think, has you know ever, ever been captured by by any one government. Um, as Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, says, it is the church for England. And I think in moments of, you know, sort of national crisis, it is absolutely right, uh, for example, that I think the church has been very supportive of the vaccination campaign. And indeed, you know, Litchfield Cathedral, just to take one example, you know, was a, you know, the most magnificent and wonderful um, vaccination centre in, in the whole country, pretty much. And, and you know, many, many churches ha- ha- have been offered and used. So, you know, there are absolutely times when it is it is completely right. And I think on a, on a cross-party, non-party political basis, you know, people would, would really welcome the, the, the support of the church for what the government is, is, is doing and, and, you know, things like the vaccination campaign. But actually, day-to-day on individual political decisions, and so on, you know, the bishops and the House of Lords are are independent and are very much providing their own critique of um, of what the government does. I noticed looking at the the, the order paper that the the popularity of uh, Church of State's commissioner question time has, has grown during the pandemic. People have probably seen the, the role of the church in their community being a, a more positive, certainly a more active thing. It's been an opportunity to ask about things to do with worship, the things that you are and aren't allowed to do during the pandemic, the role of the church as a education provider, as you as you rightly say. I wonder how you feel about the kind of questions that you get particularly from non-Christian MPs, do you ever have very difficult questions from people who are either very hostile to the notion of the church having this privileged place in the state, or even people who take real issue on aspects of church teaching? What's been the most difficult line of questioning you've had to uh, face? I've certainly had some critical questions, but just going back to something you said earlier on in, in your question, Tim, I think when the churches did closed during the first lockdown I think there was a tremendous sense of what we'd lost actually and I think MPs were really reflecting you know the concerns of their constituents about you know when they would be able to get back to church and how important the role of of the church was in their communities so um, probably some of the most difficult questions I've had probably were on that issue really of you know why why were churches closed i mean obviously this was a decision taken by the government um the, the church of england supported the government it, it did go slightly further than the government asked during the first lockdown and justin welby has uh, subsequently said that he you know he, he believes he was overly cautious but from my point of view he was trying to do what he thought was right to help the country in a moment of national crisis to make sure the churches weren't super spreaders. But we absolutely understand how precious and important it is for, you know, congregations to be able to meet together. And many people, including me, are really looking forward to be able to sing hymns again in church rather than having to go outside and sing them in the churchyard, as I've done on on the last couple of Sundays. 
Um, as we draw towards the end, Andrew, you obviously um, are in this important sort of nexus position between Parliament and government and the church. Do you have a, um, a word maybe for churches uh, around the country and church leaders and other Christians as to how your role might help them to be heard, how they can engage with you? Well, I've got a really, really practical suggestion, Tim, because on Friday the 25th of June, uh, as you will know, we have the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast. So what I would say to church leaders is write to your MP and ask her or him to a breakfast. At the moment, we know we can have six people together inside. We'll find out if it's, it's more than that. You could, whether it's getting nicer at the moment, you could possibly have up to 30 outside, couldn't you? So why don't you get to know your MP? Actually, I always think that um, pastors, uh, church leaders, priests and MPs are very much in the same same business, actually. You know, pastoral care um, for constituents slash parishioners is, is at, the heart, at the heart of what we do. And actually, I think we work better together, actually. You know, there will absolutely be a little bit of challenge going both ways, perhaps. But um, yeah, Friday 25th of June, as a church leader, please write to your MP ask them uh, to come to a breakfast with you and other church leaders, form that relationship, you know, then you can pray for them and support them in their work, raise issues of concern with them. You know, you're not signing up to uh, the political allegiance of your MP. You're just respecting the fact that they've been democratically elected and have a mandate for that position. So I think that would be a wonderful thing to do. Andrew, it's been such a pleasure spending time with you uh, today. Thank you for all that you do for your constituency and in your role uh, with the estates as the Estates Commissioner, Church Estates Commissioner. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Have a lovely day. Thank you, Tim. Great to be with you. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. This is your chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. It could be ethical, it could be political. Dare I say it, it might even be personal. And this week, we've got a question from Alison in London. Hi, Tim. In Romans chapter 13, we're told to submit to governing authorities. Are there ever circumstances where it's okay for Christians to break the law? And is there any place for Christians to take part in acts of civil disobedience? I think this is a great question and one where it's right for us to really seek wisdom and to pray for it as we seek to interpret what the Bible is telling us here. I think maybe the most countercultural thing here. Um, is something that we don't think is countercultural, that we should submit to governing authorities. What is it that's natural for human beings to do? And it's not to submit, is it? It's to take power ourselves. It's to assume that we are the gods of our own lives. And as we're told to be sacrificial towards people um, who uh, perhaps don't deserve it, to be forgiving towards people who perhaps don't deserve it, uh, given that we're recipients of forgiveness and we don't deserve it. Likewise, we're told to submit to people who perhaps don't deserve it. So the radical thing here is being told to submit at all. It's very clear, you know, reading the Bible, that human authority is expected to be not perfect, nowhere near it. And yet submission is something that is expected of us. But it's a mirror or maybe a shadow, uh, rather, of what it is to be submitting to God. And humility before God is clearly uh, what we are most commanded to do. And there are going to be experiences, there are going to be examples where and extreme versions would be some of the totalitarian, authoritarian, wicked regimes we've seen during the 20th century, um, in Europe in particular, where there may be 
clear, stark divergence between what is God's will and what is the instruction of a government, in which case, then I think it is okay to break the law, even to take part in civil disobedience. But remember always that we should be guided by that ultimate command, and that is to submit to God, to his authority. And that sometimes will mean submitting to authority here on earth. Well, if you've got a question you'd like me to answer, I'd love it if you wrote it in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, as we draw to the end of this week's programme, I'd love it if you joined me in prayer. A loving Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the fact that we have a parliament that allows us to debate very big issues and sometimes issues that are really quite controversial. We thank you for the relative wealth of the country in which we live and for the resources that that gives us. I pray you give wisdom and courage uh, to our leaders, uh, those who hold high office in government and those who are members of parliament, um, so that decisions that are made over what we give and how we give to the world's poorest are made in accordance with your will. I pray that your will will be done in these coming days and weeks as Parliament looks again at whether we are making right choices in this area. And Father, when it comes to choices, we are thinking of the impending uh, removal of further restrictions as we uh, move towards that day to the 21st of June. Uh, Lord, we ask that your will would be done and that uh, the wisdom that comes from you would be given to our Prime Minister, to our Health Secretary, to all those involved in making the big decisions about whether and when and how we unlock. And as we see the potential for delay in some of the ending of restrictions, we are reminded that um, our hope can be deferred and delayed and removed if our hope is in earthly things. So Lord, let us model um, that gospel of truth by living as though your hope, your real eternal hope is true and that it is our hope um, that we might be motivated by living for you and that temporary setbacks or changes in our circumstances would not be the things that uh, guide us or define us, but our faith in you would be that which uh, is the bedrock of uh, all of our choices and all of our attitudes. And may that shine through in the society in which we live. And we ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, next week, we'll be joined by Jane Dodds, a Christian, a former member of Parliament, but recently elected to the Welsh Senate. I'm Tim Farron. Thank you so much for listening. You can listen to the podcast of this programme online by searching for A Mucky Business. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like to put to Tim in a future show, email farron at premier.org.uk.